Uh, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be joined with Roger Schwelt. And he spells his name a little bit differently. It's S is in Sam, E-H-E-U-L-T, but I just learned the correct pronunciation is Dr. Schwelt. And well, who is he? He is the voice and face of um, an entrepreneurial entity called MedCram. And MedCram has become the voice and face of COVID um, during this pandemic. It's been hailed as one of the most informative sources that are out there. He's an associate clinical professor at University of California, Riverside School of Medicine, as well as an assistant clinical professor, School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda out in California. Takes care of COVID-19 patients, but he's also a pulmonary and critical care doctor, board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine. Those are four, certi four certifications, far more than I have. So that, that's excellent. And um, co-founder of MedCram. What's the tagline of MedCram? It's medical videos and lectures explained clearly by world-class instructors. Um, you get CME credits for EKG, ventilator settings, ABGs, and also COVID-19. I'm, I'm starting to sound like a commercial right here. But uh, most importantly, um, this has had, MedCram has had 50 million video views and for the COVID-19 um, webinars has about 800,000 uh, subscribers. So thanks for taking time from your schedule uh, today, uh, Roger. I know that you're still working in the intensive care unit and we appreciate you being generous with your time. Welcome so much. Thank you so much, Jeff. All right, so early in this COVID-19 pandemic, I actually zeroed in on two sites, one MedCram, the other one TWIV, or This Week in Virology, where you've got uh, three or four virologists to um, talk for about uh, initially one hour, now it's about two and a half hours, and they nailed down uh, the science. The thing that's kind of cool about MedCram is that the, um, the webinars, I guess I'd call them webinar presentations, they're YouTube videos, um, they're short, and <laughs> Roger, you have a very soothing voice actually in the midst of a pandemic and giving nothing but the facts and um, exquisite graphics that do an excellent job uh, explaining. And as I noted in the introduction, the MedCram videos were cited as reliable and trustworthy, um, which is important because in contrast with the news media, I see only two extremes. These are the two extremes. The world is coming to an end and there won't be anyone left standing or this is all a case uh, of the sniffles. And uh, when I think about this, I'm reminded of Mark Twain who talked about um, taking a morning paper. He said that if you, if you don't take a morning paper, you're uninformed. If you do take a morning paper, you're mis misinformed. So the news media, I think, has done a very... Uh, poor job in terms of being particularly informative. So thank you for for the work you've been doing. Why don't we start by telling us what you do in the hospital? What is your role there? What type of patients are you seeing? Well, yeah, thanks, Jeff. So I am a critical care intensivist. So I take care of patients that are critically ill. They're usually in the intensive care unit. And uh, that, that can be anybody from someone needing a ventilator because they can't breathe on their own to just they're coming out of the operating room, they're still on a ventilator, they need to be taken care of because of a, of a critical illness, uh, they have metabolic problems. So that's that's generally who I'm taking care of. And then 
I'll see patients on the regular floor of the hospital who have pulmonary issues. So they've got pleural effusions and uh, fluid around the lung or something like that. And then I also uh, see patients in the clinic uh, on other weeks as well. So these are patients that are ambulatory. They're walking around, but they might have a lung nodule or something like that. So it's, it's quite, fa uh, quite multifaceted. And California was late in the pandemic. Well, other than San Francisco, which is the other part of the state, um, your part of California, I don't think, um, was crushed early with COVID. Is that accurate? Or did you see people early on and uh, your ICUs were filled to the brim initially? No, we were uh, quite lucky in that that we were able to prepare. I work in a area of Southern California called the Inland Empire, they call it, mm -hmm. uh, Riverside, San Bernardino counties. So we kind of escaped the early wave. It was more Los mm -hmm. Angeles and San Francisco, like you said. So we had time to prepare. And um, let's talk about MedCram. So MedCram, um, as I was introduced uh, to it, um, your role has been to produce a number of polished um, videos related to explaining mostly to people who have some technical background, but also a general uh, lay audience as to what you're seeing with COVID. How did you get started with MedCram? What was the kernel of, of that idea and how did it uh, take off? Yeah, so I am a professor of medicine, uh, assistant professor of medicine at Loma Linda in the School of Medicine, also in the School of Allied Health. And so I teach physician assistant students. And that's what I was doing, oh, about 10 years ago when one of my students came through, a gentleman by the name of Kyle Allred, who's the co-founder of MedCram. His father had a lot of uh, background in teaching and education, and actually Kyle did too. And when he came to my rotation, which was just a, a four-week rotation, he, he mentioned to me, he said, you know, Dr. Schwell, people don't, People don't go to the library anymore. They don't check out books. They don't. They don't check out journals. <laughs> they they go to YouTube first of all. Uh, they go to Google. They go to YouTube, and, and and they find the shortest video they can possibly find on the topic, so they can learn it on the fly. Pretty scary, and, isn't it, when you think yeah, about it with the benefit of hindsight? Exactly. So he he's the one that came up with the idea of of online medical education. To me, it, it worked really well because these students were coming every four weeks. And I was going over the same issues. And I said, this will work great. Why don't I just record all the lectures that I'm giving these students when they come out? We'll put it on YouTube and we'll do something called flipping the classroom. This is something that Kyle also introduced me to, which is where mm -hmm. you use the time that they have to get the lecture as you know coming off of a YouTube video. And then you meet with them after the lecture. And that's when you can answer questions and fine tune things. It's kind of the opposite of what traditional education does is where you go to a lecture with a live person and then you're supposed to figure it out afterwards. Here you, you watch a video online, you learn about something, and then you talk and have an interactive experience. So we started doing these videos on our YouTube channel back in 2012. So we would put a number of videos up talking about, for instance, uh, medical acid base, um, simple topics like uh, acute renal failure and things of that nature. And so we've been doing this for years. And then we finally started our, our website, medcram.com, just a few years after that and where we would offer courses and we've got CME that's continuing medical education credits that physicians need. And it's, and it was sort of building and that's kind of where we were. We were, you know, we were certainly a presence on YouTube. It wasn't a huge presence, but we were a presence on YouTube and that led us right up to this coronavirus pandemic. 
So talk about that for a minute, because COVID truly put you on the map. I mean, it sounds like you had a, um, a limited following. Um, certainly, I could imagine the uh, the benefit related to those in training, be it uh, PAs, medical students, residents, fellows, etc. But as you get further and further uh, out into practice, um, most doctors become very specialized in terms of the types of CMEs that they're getting. But I think COVID changed all of this. Uh, talk about that for just a minute, if you would. Yeah, so basically we would put videos up that we thought were important to know for, from a medical standpoint, maybe not so you know topical or timely in terms of the news. We did do one on Zika virus when mm. it came out around the time of the, uh, of the, the Brazilian uh, um, Olympics. And it really didn't go anywhere. Just a, just a few thousand views. You know, no one was really interested. So, so this was January, and uh, things were brewing over there in China. We didn't know exactly how it was going to go, but it started to get a little bit more serious. It was getting in the news, and my wife said, "Hey, you know, you ought to do a, a video on coronavirus." I said, "Yeah, you know, that's that's a that's a good point. Maybe we'll learn about it. A lot of people might not know exactly what a virus is, and mm-hmm. and we could." could talk about that. And so I did a coronavirus video. It was the first one. We didn't even call it update one because I didn't think I was going to do another one. It was just sort of a topical <laughs> thing. And you've done a hundred, by the way. So just yeah. either yesterday or two days ago, you you hit triple digits on this with 100. Right. And uh, and I, you know, I've got this little app on my phone where you can kind of watch, you know, what happens to the video the next day. And I, my eyes almost fell out of my head when I saw how many views it was getting in just the first 12 hours. And and I think it was probably because we had been a presence on YouTube before. So the algorithm or whatever it is that they do kind of pushed it up when people started to search for it. And then it was uh, just sort of positive feedback from there. Did you get a dopamine surge when you saw the app demonstrating um, (laughs) acceptance? I couldn't, yeah, I thought I I had to rub my eyes. I thought I was seeing double. (laughs) Interesting. So my take on this is that it's just not the typical flu. Um, Early on, um, there were some reasonable statistics coming out from the Princess Cruise Line and um, information from one of the Navy ships that that, uh, stayed at port, and you saw how COVID spread through it pretty rapidly. And the lethality rate, to be fair, was probably on the order of about 0.5, 0.6%, even though if you look at the statistics on television, it makes it look a bit worse. Uh, but that's still an ugly statistic. Um, the worst flu in modern times, not going back to 1918, but in modern times, has a lethality rate of about 0 to, uh, 0.2%. So here you're looking at something that likely in a Western country has a lethality rate that's three times the worst one that we had recorded for influenza, uh, but but that horrible influenza was not a pandemic. So 0.6% is not particularly lethal compared to other horrible things that are out there like avian flu, Ebola, et cetera. But it just seems like it's a combination of that lethality number and the fact that it is a pandemic, that it's spread so easily that brings on these giant numbers. What, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think that um, because the lethality rate in and of itself is not particularly high, that it caused people to become a bit more complacent or just not to step up in terms of near-term efforts. The early, the early efforts were designed strictly to keep our hospitals from being inundated with difficult-to-treat patients. I mean, we saw videos 
from Italy where you had, I mean, they, they ran out of ICU space, they ran out of ventilators, and you had people being triaged in the hallways. I mean, it looked it looked pretty frightening, even with a lethality rate that wasn't, you know, um, you know, in double digits. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's 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 all of those things. You hit on all of them uh, there very very nicely there, Jeff. It's it's such a huge denominator. That's the problem. We, we've got a people look at the death rate. That's that's the that's the ratio of the numerator to the denominator. But what we're dealing with here is such a huge denominator that the that the total deaths uh, can overwhelm the system. Once you overwhelm the system, now the death rates for every disease starts to go up. Why? Because people can't get in to see the care that they need to get. And, and then there's the, the I think the probably the most misunderstood thing about this uh, pandemic is is the thing about exponential growth. People can't mm -hmm. wrap their heads around exponential growth. And I'll give you uh, an example that it was taught to me many years ago in math class about yeah. uh, exponents. And it's the old question, uh, if, you, if you had a choice, I could give you a penny mm -hmm. for the first day of the month and every day for the rest of that month, I would double the amount of money I gave you, or I can give you a million dollars. And you know, without thinking much about it, you're like, man, give me the million dollars. I'll take the million dollars. But the way exponents work is every day is a doubling. Every day is a doubling. So the first day, it's a penny. The second day, it's two pennies. And you get four pennies on the third day, eight pennies, you know, 16 pennies. And you're like, well, this is going nowhere. And, and so imagine that's happening. Now, the healthcare leaders in our, our country understand this. And so when we start to see this start to happen, we start to shut things down. People are like, why are we shutting down the world over a bunch of pennies? Well, if you do the math, and that's the key, is you got to do the math. By the time you get to the end of the month, you've got five million dollars, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's and, and and most of that problem is going to happen on the last two to three days of the month. We we don't want to get to the last two to three days of that month because once it starts getting there, it's it's a disaster. It's like bubonic plague time. I mean, what you're um, stating what at it by that point, it's too late. Meaning that it's too late. Yeah. Um, the beauty of exponential growth, um, I mean, there's a flip side to this, is that if you cut it off early, you eliminate the downside, the back end, and you never see it, which would be a wonderful outcome. The problem is how to get people's attention to let them know a crisis is coming when we're not used to this type of crisis. We're used to all or none crises, um, a nuclear bomb, an asteroid hitting. I mean, I'm pulling ridiculous examples out, but those are either zero or 100%. Here, you've got something where over time, you start to see it build and build, but it doesn't hit your eyes until a lot of damage has been done. And by then, you really are playing an amazing game of catch up. Exactly. The other point that's kind of interesting is that because coronavirus is novel, I mean, let's assume for the moment that this was your run-of-the-mill flu, influenza. We do have experience with flu, and I know everybody's really talked about how this can be compared in some capacity to influenza. But the thing about influenza is that it's been around for a while. We have knowledge of it. We have prior exposure to various viruses, um, and we have some element of immunity. We also every year have a vaccine, whether or not it works or not is another story, but certainly frequently it works good enough. We also have therapeutics like Tamiflu. Um, so in one sense, you know, influenza is a inappropriate analogy to compare to a novel virus that we have no experience with except for SARS-1. 
Why don't you talk about that for just a minute? Yeah, so we've taken care of influenza for many years. In fact, actually right before this coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic, we had a bit of a bump in, uh, we may still actually, in H1N1 2009 mm-hmm. flu. I was, I was seeing that in the hospital. And uh, that one is notable because that one seems to affect the heart more. Like a, they get a myocarditis, that's inflammation of the, of the heart tissue. And that can cause cardiac arrest. It can cause uh, conduction abnormalities. And so that one is notable for the fact that here's a virus that tends to affect other organs of the body in in addition to the lungs, which of course we all know is is the major problem. People get pneumonia, they can't breathe, they end up on the ventilator. And that's what we thought this was going to be. And we, I, I and everybody else are just totally blown away at how this virus affects so much more than, than just the lungs. And I think the primary way that it's doing that is through blood clots and thrombosis. This is this has been seen multiple times in autopsy series. There was a, a article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that there was nine times as many blood clots in coronavirus victims than there were in influenza victims. And that's just that's just mind blowing because this is an this is an endothelial disease. That's endothelial is is basically the coating of your blood vessels. Of course, blood vessels go throughout the entire body. And depending on where the blood clot is, you're going to get a different symptom. If it's in the kidneys, you're going to get kidney failure. If it's in the the brain, you're going to get a stroke. If it's in the heart, you're going to get a heart attack. And uh, that's why we're seeing so many different symptoms. This, if it affects the nerves, you're going to get burning, a burning sensation. Um, uh, People get that, that I've, I've had patients call me and say, I have this burning sensation all over my body. It comes, what do I need to do? And that's the other aspect of this. When people recover from the flu, they might feel weak for a while and then they get better. There is something called uh, long haulers. They've sort of self-described themselves and they can have symptoms that are going on for months. In fact, I just saw an article that that showed that 70 to 80% of post-COVID patients have some sort of heart dysfunction seen on echocardiography. This is this is a, like a virus we've never seen. So we're talking. Okay, so you've got two bookends. You've got um, um, you either live or you die. So that's mortality or lethality. But um, then you also have morbidity. What it's like to get sick. You may live, but you may have a horrible illness. And even when you recover from the illness, illness you may have sequela. So it's this is more than just a it's either lethal or not lethal. You've got everything in between. Um, I do know that we were planning to take a cycling trip to Spain in April of this year. So we made those plans last year and we saw the disease working its way through Italy um, in uh, the end of January, early February. But we still had a chance to get our, our money back. And I. I started thinking, well, look, you know, there's a giant mountain range between the two countries. You have the Alps and the Pyrenees. Uh, my guess is it'll be uh, contained. And I, I was still hoping to go until the bitter end. But one of the people going with us, she's a physician. She said, look, you know, even if the lethality rate is low, these people are really getting sick. This isn't, you know, your grandmother's flu. These are people that are spending time uh, in a hospital, and we have no idea what the long-term effects of this is. We, by the way, we ended up canceling that trip and got all of our money back. But um, I think what a lot of people don't get is that 
some of these people get sick. They stay in the hospital for a long period of time. Some of them will linger for two, three, four weeks before passing away. So that occupies a bed and intensive care unit that someone else cannot get to with more conventional illnesses. And even if they do um, recover, recovery means different things to different people. And there may be people who never get back to their full capacity. We know of one high intensity cyclist. I mean, this is someone who's probably 30s or 40s, I can't remember precisely, who maybe not Olympic level athlete, but certainly more than a weekend warrior. I mean, uh, very competitive in terms of being able to do um, uh, Ironman uh, type competitions. Uh, she ended up getting um, COVID. Um, she recovered at home. She's exactly what you described as a long hauler. She says that uh, it's been uh, a couple of months. She does not believe she can go out and cycle more than 10, you know, 10 miles right now at, at just a regular pace, much less, you know, competitive level. So these, this seems to linger. And I think what is missed is the morbidity associated with it above and beyond just the news catching mortality statistics. Yeah, everything that you've said there, Jeff, is 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 right and well informed. That's exactly what I'm seeing in the intensive care unit. We have patients in there for weeks. Uh, the ones that get better, they have symptoms that that linger. Um, and it, it could very well be this is you know this. Let's play devil's advocate. This is exactly maybe what what the the flu does. The flu also does this in in a in a small percentage of of patients. And it could very well be that because so many people are getting it. We're, we're hearing so many of those stories. It could be a denominator thing, or it could actually be that this is a different virus. I, I, I don't know if it's both of those or if it's one more than the other, but we're certainly seeing it on, on a frequent basis. So I want to start with your hypothesis, because you, you came to this hypothesis somewhat early. I mean, most people suggested early on this is an upper respiratory tract infection. Some people have the misfortune for it turning into a lower respiratory tract infection and or pneumonia. Um, but you, you seem to um, gravitate to the notion that there's endothelial involvement with systemic manifestations, and this creates um, a number of uh, clotting cascade uh, phenomena, and because of that, it cascades very quickly into a systemic manifestation, which makes it very hard to control. Um, having said that, you you positioned it in a way biochemically that made sense to to me and to many people. Why don't we, you, you don't have the benefit of a whiteboard here to do it, but I think for the benefit of our listeners, if you could just briefly describe the biochemical cascade you believe is going on, some of the evidence you have to support it. And then finally, um, some of the interventions we can do to mitigate this in its track. Absolutely, that's a, yes. that's a mouthful right there. So sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's good, Jeff. So there's there's really two major parts to this. There's the switch, and then there's the light bulb, if you will. So the switch. Let's talk about the switch. This mm -hmm. switch is really the ACE2 enzyme. ACE2 is an enzyme that does something very very important. It is a balance of a, of, a, of a huge system called the renin-angiotensin system, which regulates blood pressure in the body. And its role is to convert something called angiotensin 2 into angiotensin 1-7. Okay, so 
angiotensin 2 is a protein, angiotensin 1-7 is a protein. Now, it, it's basically taking angiotensin 2, which is a pro-oxidant molecule. It, it, it creates oxidative stress. Angiotensin 2 creates oxidative stress. And how and why is oxidative stress good or bad for the body? Yeah, so that's a whole that's the whole discussion. That's the light bulb actually. Oxidative stress when it builds can cause inflammation in whichever cell it's happening. In this case it's the endothelium. Mm-hmm. So, uh angiotensin so ACE2 is converting angiotensin 2 into angiotensin 1-7. Angiotensin 1-7 is is the alter ego. It's the flip side. It's it's the uh, it's the it's the Danny DeVito of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger and twins. OK, it's the total. They, they go together in a pair, but they're the total opposite because angiotensin 1-7 is a antioxidant, very powerful mm-hmm. antioxidant. And so what ACE2 is doing is it's balancing out all of the oxidative processes that are going on in the body and counterbalancing it by taking something that's pro-oxidant and actually turning it into something that's antioxidant. That's like in basketball, stealing the ball at your opponent's end and coming back and scoring a basket at your end. It's a, it's a double, it's a two-point switch is what's going on here. So ACE2 is extremely important in making sure that you don't have too much oxidative stress. In so, one sense, it almost sounds like the difference between sugar and blueberries, you know, in terms yeah, of the effect on the body. That, exactly. So imagine taking sugar and converting into blueberries. That's exactly what ACE2 does. So the, your endothelial lining is just lined with ACE2. It's everywhere. It's all over the endothelial uh, system. And so when this virus goes bloodborne, it's, it's going to attack, bind, take out of commission a huge proportion of ACE2 enzymes, all of which are responsible for, for doing exactly what we just described. And so at that moment, you lose the ability to convert something that's a pro-oxidant into an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. And now what you do is you get a massive burst of oxidative stress. Now, what's important here is that that could happen to anybody. And so the, the, the thing that becomes important that we're finding out is what is your oxidative stress balance before the infection and that's what's really, really important because if your oxidative stress balance before the infection is relatively good, then you can survive this kind of a hit because it's going to be a temporary hit. But if your oxidative balance before you get this infection is not very good, then this may be, and here's the here's the euphemism, the straw that breaks the camel's back, tips mm-hmm. you over the edge, all of these sorts of things. So what are the things that can cause oxidative stress? Right. BMI. Uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, obesity, uh, renal insufficiency, renal disease, diabetes type 2, all of these uh, conditions move the scale in the favor of pro-oxidative stress. And so these are the exact people that we are seeing ending up in the hospital. You know, before this epidemic pandemic began, I was telling my pulmonary patients, my COPD patients, my asthma patients, these are the patients that are typically the ones that are susceptible to influenza. We told them in January and February, March, you need to make sure you're safe. You need to stay out of the way, stay home. This is coming, this virus is coming for you. And what did you learn actually, about, were they actually vulnerable or not? Well, it actually, it turns out that they're not really the ones that are vulnerable. There was some data that came out with JAMA uh, that was published in New York City. And where they were, you know, we looked, they talked about the people that were getting this disease, who were ending up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. 
And the people that were obese had cardiovascular disease way overrepresented based on the New York City population. COPD, asthma, they were the same as the New York City population. So we didn't see an increase in COPD or asthma, but we did see an increase in diabetics, hypertensives, cardiovascular disease. And it's because of this oxidative stress. So, so, the, so why is oxidative stress so bad? Oxidative stress is bad because it will cause inflammation of the cells. When you have inflammation of the cells, they, they come off the surface. And that's the other important thing that you have to understand is these endothelial cells are protecting the, the, the cell structure below or the body, the, the superstructure of the vessel below. Th these vessels have prothrombotic agents on them. And so if they're not covered, and if these prothrombotic agents like collagen and things of that nature are exposed to the blood products, the blood will, th will, will thrombose, they will, they will clot because that's what so it's supposed to do. So let me ask you a question. Um, I'm yeah. trying to um, just keep an image in my head. If the yeah. endothelial cell comes off, does the body believe somehow there's now a hole that needs to be walled off? Is that the thinking that it's expecting an endothelial cell? The one reason you would not find an endothelial cell is because there's now a hole in that vessel wall. That's exactly right. And, and that's exactly why people get heart attacks classically is that the endothelial surface of the coronary artery uh, underneath it has become so inflamed and, that there is a, a plaque rupture or burst and immediately you'll get platelets to that area and you'll get uh, a thrombosis blocking off the vessel causing a heart attack. So it sounds like our American demographics, because I look around and I've certainly I've been in an airport more than my fair share in an airplane sitting in the middle seat. The number of people walking around um, who have high BMIs who are morbidly obese has skyrocketed over the past couple of decades. The number of people who either have uh, prediabetes or diabetes has skyrocketed. And some of those may be well-controlled, some not well-controlled. Was were we just sitting ducks here in a Western country because the general health of our population um, was tuned down and not tuned up? Put a different way, if we had all been on the program eating well, proper weight, no diabetes, um, the virus would still work its way through the system, but the morbidity and potentially mortality wouldn't be as much of a factor. Is that, is that a reasonable way to think about this? Yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, I mean, look at other countries that don't suffer from obesity. They may be on the other side of the uh, economic system. And mm -hmm. so they actually may have malnourishments in other different areas. For instance, if you look at India, um, I mean, they certainly have a mortality rate over there, but it's not anything close to what we're seeing over here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. And what about people with diabetes? I mean, is it diabetes in and of itself that creates the problem um, or, I mean, Put a different way, does it matter if it's well-controlled or poorly controlled? I mean, I'm guessing poorly controlled is worse, but even if you're well-controlled diabetes, does that still put you in higher risk than someone who is in pretty good shape? You know, there, there's emerging evidence coming out that, uh, that uh, the, the person that is <clears throat> the highest risk for mortality and morbidity is, interestingly, somebody with well-controlled diabetes but has huge swings in glucose when they get into the hospital. In other words, they don't do well under stress. The way we measure, one of the ways that we can measure how well someone's 
diabetes is under control is with something called the hemoglobin A1C. It's basically the average glucose in someone's body over the last two to three months. And uh, there was a study that came out that showed that somebody, the, the people that you have to be worried about the most when they come into the hospital are those people with normal hemoglobin A1Cs, but they have huge swings in their glucose uh, when they're put under stress. I don't know exactly what that means for the every everyday person because we want to keep their diabetes under control, but there may be a genetic subset of patients there that are just um, more susceptible. Well, we learned this early on in taking care of um traumatic brain injury that if they come in, certainly there's a lot of cortisol that gets released and you start to see uh, horrific spikes in glucose. And what we learned early on is that if you can cut the peaks and make sure that they're not, that they don't become profoundly hypoglycemic and hyperglycemic, um, they ended up doing better. That if you lost control and they ended up having um, high levels of blood sugar, that they ended up doing worse, which is why some of the people early on were talking about early feeding with lipids. I don't want to get too much into the weeds right here, but interestingly enough, you know, the the high levels of glucose turns this into a pro-inflammatory state and creates all sorts of poor outcomes for all types of conditions that are out there, interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah, that's that's uh, what the thinking is. And initially, we didn't know if the elevated glucose levels was the cause of the worsening outcome or simply a signal of something else that was the cause. You know, the other thing that makes this virus pretty crafty is that uh, it it can spread either in the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic state. And normally, our first barrier of defense is the innate immune system where the body just sees something coming in, doesn't really quite know what it is, has no experience with the past, uh, with a, a past uh, exposure. And it just says, hey, there's a fire going on. Let's just go ahead and um, send the fire trucks out and we'll kind of we'll we'll douse the whole the whole body, you know, with with water to keep this thing from spreading, interfering, being one of the compounds, it's it's definitely non-specific. And in fact, the interferon that people release early on in a flu or other conditions is why they feel so miserable. It just causes headaches, photophobia, and all other types of symptoms. Um, we know that that's the case because when you give people interferon to treat conditions like uh, MS, they describe the same flu-like symptoms. But the thing that's really crafty about this virus, I think it's about this virus, um, certainly with the SARS-CoV-1, is that it has a mechanism to hijack or intercept the body's production of interferon until, you know, until it's had a chance to go through an exponential um, uh, reproduction cycle. And, and so it allows it to, to reproduce um, quite a bit and spread without the the patient even being aware of what's going on inside their body. Um, you've definitely seen that, I'm sure, with um, um, people are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, and then all of a sudden, you know, they've spread to so many, the, the condition has spread to so many different people before they even have a whiff of the fact that they've got a problem on their hands. Yeah, this is, I believe, at the center of why we're having so many problems with, with, uh, this virus is that it suppresses that very, very important innate immune system. Maybe the reason why we're seeing differences in children versus adults and, and elderly adults is that as we get older and older, that innate immune system becomes weaker. 
And uh, any way that we can boost that innate immune system is going to be helpful in terms of uh, keeping that virus under control. We, we think asymptomatic is, is a good thing here. It's, it, it's, it's actually a bad thing because it's, first of all, it doesn't tell us when we're infected, number one. And number two, symptoms are good in this situation because symptoms tell us that your immune system has detected something. And as you just mentioned, the, the interferon is, is, is coming forth and it's, uh, it's fighting the, the virus. And fighting the virus is good in the early stages because if the virus isn't fought and spreads, it's going to trigger a, uh, a reaction down the line that's not going to be beneficial at all. The other thing about this particular virus, which makes it um, ugly, well, it's an RNA virus. So RNA typically, my understanding, at least listening to TWIB, is that RNA viruses are more prone to mutating than DNA viruses. But this particular RNA virus has a proofreading gene. So if it does mutate, it's got a gene that tries to keep it back on track to keep it from mutating. Um, any thoughts on that? It may be too soon to know whether there's any significance uh, to that. Maybe that's helpful, maybe not helpful, but it just seems like it keeps it out there longer as opposed to having it mutating into a less, a less virulent type of uh, a virus. Yeah, I agree. Mutation is good. You know, the, um, it, this may sound uh, counterintuitive, but viruses don't want, the viruses want to produce. That's what they want to do. And mm -hmm. Uh, you know, dead bodies don't produce viruses very well. So uh, a successful virus would be like the cold virus. It just causes a little bit of, uh, of uh, you know, inconvenience for the host and it spreads on and goes on. Those are the successful viruses. Ebola is not a very successful virus uh, because it kills the person that it's in pretty quickly and it, and it dies off in terms of success being defined as the amount of copies worldwide. Yeah, as it's been stated, you don't want to kill the horse you rode in on. So um, right. <laughs> I think you do, you want to you want to spread it as much as you can, and being stealthy is probably a better way to do that than to alert the world that you are Ebola, because everybody can see Ebola coming a mile away, which is why you can do contact tracing there. It's actually right. doable. Um, let's migrate a little bit. Um, in terms of the patients you're seeing, um, when they come to the hospital, what percent typically require um, just monitoring O2, um, placement of step-down unit, ICU, intubation, you know, the whole life cycle of this. You know, if 100 people show up into your hospital, just help us understand how they get triaged over time, what people can expect. These are all. These are only the people that are showing up in the emergency room, not the people who are either seeing a doctor in their office, urgent care, who never show up at all. Right. So I work at the, a hospital in San Bernardino County Community Hospital, and and about we've set up a little tent outside. We call it the COVID Village, where people can come in and get tested for COVID, and uh, you know get the results back uh, depending on on how bad the how bad the the influx is. I would say, uh, from my understanding, I don't work down there, but I've I've heard some of the numbers. They see maybe about 50 or 60 people a day, and you know how many people get admitted to the hospital on a daily basis for COVID at our hospital? Maybe out of out of the 50 that come in, maybe we we uh, admit maybe two or three people, two or three or four people to the uh, to the uh, medical surge unit, um, and then I would say how many people get kicked up into the ICU? on a regular basis, maybe one or two. And that may not sound like a lot, but uh, these people, when they come into the intensive care unit, they stay there for quite some time. We've had 
we've had people stay there in the intensive care unit. Uh, I would say the low end is at least three or four or five days uh, if they're if they're coming in because they need what we call high flow oxygen or they need non-invasive ventilation uh, with a mask or they need to be put on a ventilator. Um, so at the long end, we've had people stay in that intensive care unit literally for months uh, that, that they're just not getting better. They're sort of stuck at a level. Well, I just read about one woman who received a double lung transplant. Um, I'm assuming that everything else didn't work, but she was still able, I mean, she was still viable. And in fact, it looks like she made a reasonable recovery. Of course, you hate to say that anyone with a lung transplant is out of the woods, but um, you, you realize that even with an extensive toolkit, and you do have a much better toolkit right now than you had at the beginning. I mean, you've got proning, high flow oxygen, uh, mm -hmm. antivirals, decadron, convalescent plasma, hyperimmune globulin, <laughs> monoclonal antibodies, and so on and so forth. I mean, with a smorgasbord of so many things to do, what have you seen work? What have you moved away from? And um, do, do you feel like this is, we're settling in on best practices across the country? I'm hoping that's so. Loaded, you know, that's the, a loaded question. And yeah. um, just thanks for taking a stab at it. Um, yeah. So, and of course, anything that I've seen is going to be anecdotal. So it's hard to to generalize that. You know, we're very happy that we saw some evidence that remdesivir worked. And we've been getting our, our weekly allotments of remdesivir. And we've having meetings about who gets it, who doesn't get it, making sure that people are we're not missing anybody. Uh, we've recently had to say, you know, we, well, we don't have any remdesivir, so we'll have to put these people on hold until we get our next shipment because there's shortages. You can't give it to people with renal insufficiency. It can cause renal insufficiency. Um, we've initially, we're doing 10 days on ventilated patients. Uh, and just because of the shortage, we're now doing five. There was some data that came out that showed that uh, people on the ventilator really don't respond to remdesivir. I think if you look at the subgroup analysis of that, uh, of that article. So that's remdesivir. The other one, of course, is decadron. Mm -hmm. And we, we have data from the recovery trial that shows that decadron actually more than anything else helped in these patients who are on oxygen, specifically those who are on the ventilator more than those that were just on regular oxygen. In that study, interesting, Jeff, they were um, using it for 10 days and they're they, they did six milligrams a day for 10 days. You could do it intravenously or orally. It's bioavailable. The pharmacokinetics of that drug are that it lasts for about 24 to 48 hours. So they didn't see the need to taper that medication. You could just do it for 10 days and stop. What I have seen, and we're trying to get some case studies together to look at this, but what I have seen is a number of patients have rebounded and gotten much worse after we stopped the medication. Without and a taper. So, You're talking about yeah, without, um, just cold turkey. You give it, give it, give it. Then you just stop cold turkey, correct? Yeah. So so the kind of to give your audience a little bit of understanding of what we're measuring in these patients, we're looking every day at ferritin levels as a, as a means of looking at inflammation. We're looking at CRP levels, probably a, a faster way of looking at what's the inflammation looking like in the endothelium and the body that day. We're also looking at D-dimers. That's a, sort of a gross way of looking at the clot burden going on in the body. And of course, the, the big endpoint that we love to see in these patients who are ventilated is the amount of oxygen that we have to give them mm -hmm. as, as measured by the FiO2. So that's, a, you know, a 0.5 would be 50%, 1.0 would be 100%. And I can, I can tell you in the last week, at least of three or four patients that 
within one to two days of stopping their 10-day course of Decadron got significantly worse. And so I'm we're looking now very carefully at these patients when their 10 days are up. Are these patients that are clearly out of the woods, they're off the ventilator, they're doing better, or are they still in the thick of it on the ventilator? And we've been we've been you know making some some clinically based decisions on what we do with that decadron. In the neurosurgical world, um, if you put a patient on decadron for anything other than for a surgical procedure, you know, where it's one and done, almost always you end up tapering over time only because you get tired of hearing the phone call saying, I was fine, fine, fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, kazam, everything went, uh, went to hell in a handbasket. So, you know, um, and that's, and that's exactly what's, what we're seeing is, uh, uh, we're seeing that uh, bump up in CRPs, ferritin, FiO2. And what about proning? Um, and tell people what proning is. Um, certainly, many of the listeners will be aware of it. They've been exposed to it now, but most people had not heard of it and thought it was an unusual or crazy idea before the COVID pandemic. But this is not a new idea. It's not something that was developed over the past uh, several months. It, it is an older idea that has uh, been applied to a new problem. Right. So the, the words that we use for these are supine being lying on your back and prone being lying on your belly. And um, we, we talked about this in one of our videos called How Coronavirus Kills, probably one of our, our most uh, popular videos on this, where we talk about at least what was the evidence in ARDS, which we thought acute respiratory distress syndrome is sort of the, the way that coronavirus kills patients. And it is partially true. That's, that's how it does it. What, what was the data, what was the evidence behind improved survival in ARDS patients? And uh, we talked about low tidal volumes. We talked about the use of paralytics. But the other thing that we talked about was proning. And proning is when you put a patient who's on a ventilator or even not on a ventilator, as it turns out, on their belly. And what this does is to the degree that there's fluid in the lungs, it's going to shift that fluid gravitationally to a place in the lungs that it's going to affect the least amount of the lung volume. That's one theory. Another theory is that by proning, instead of the heart laying on the lungs and compressing it, since the heart is an anterior structure in the chest, the heart is being pushed forward and laying against the chest wall off the lungs, allowing the lungs to better expand and to oxygenate, at least on that left, on that left side. And, and so what we're seeing there is better oxygenation. Now, there was a study that came out recently in coronavirus, in COVID-19 specifically, and at least in that study where it did improve oxygenation and improved uh, the vent uh, endpoints, it seems as though in that, at least in that study, that it didn't prevent eventual intubation in patients mm. or did it, uh, nor did it uh, improve survival. But it's, um, it certainly is a tool that we are using right now to uh, stave off intubation in patients who are on the edge. So we have a patient who is on high flow oxygen and they're saturating in the, in the low 90s or high 80s and, uh, and doing well for, for any other reason, we'll go ahead and, and put them on their belly. And I've seen dramatic improvements in oxygenation. I've, I've seen one where someone had a PaO2, which is the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood of 60, go from 60 to 260 just by turning. That's pretty impressive to be able to see that with just a simple action. I mean, that's very gratifying. You don't really see much of that in medicine. Normally, you have to be patient and wait. But to see yeah. an immediate effect, that's that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. 
Are you getting your hands on, and maybe you have any comments on convalescent plasma or hyperimmune globulin? I don't know that monoclonal antibodies have actually cleared through in any capacity other than in very formal clinical trials. Um, any experience with that? Well, just, yeah. So just to, uh, to address that question about monoclonal antibodies, tocilizumab, which is the uh, antibody against IL-6, which we have been using, there was just a paper that came out a couple of days, three days ago, that showed that there it did not meet its endpoints uh, in terms of in, uh, decreased hospitalization, things of that nature. So that may be one that we cross off our lists uh, in terms of, of use. I think there was a trend toward decreased hospitalization. So it wasn't harmful, but it, it just didn't meet its statistical endpoint. But on the bigger topic that you mentioned, convalescent plasma, we... Uh, as you probably know, in, in the United States, different counties contract specifically with different blood bank companies. Mm -hmm. I, I know in LA County, they go with the American Red Cross. Uh, here, us in San Bernardino, Riverside County, here in Southern California, we go with a company called Lifestream. Um, they're all sort of working together to try to figure out how to get this convalescent plasma. We at the hospital are are able to use it. Sometimes th there's a little bit of a delay. We'll order it and we'll have to wait. It also depends on the type, blood type of the patient, because there's more types of plasma available for different types of blood types of patients. But in all of our patients, in our, for instance, in our COVID village outside, they get tested and they're positive. We always send them a note to say, you know, after you recover, please, if you could go and donate, it's going to help. And people are, are more than willing to do that if they, if they think that it can help. I should tell you, though, that all of this is being done through a, a study. Um, there's a number of studies, there's a Mayo Clinic study, um, and there's a number of other studies that are, are using this. So this is, it's still investigational. We don't know for a fact that it works. We know that in other diseases, antibodies against viruses and things work, but we just don't know yet in COVID-19 whether it works. Hopefully we'll be getting that data soon. This may be a stupid question, but if you're capturing convalescent plasma, presumably you're giving all components of plasma to the patient, um, including the antibodies, which would be a good thing. Um, but one of the things you talked about early was that there's a clotting cascade that just goes horribly wrong. Does convalescent plasma have these clotting factors? And if so, does it change, does it move the needle at all? In a bad yeah, the way? clotting, yeah, the, I don't, I don't, theoretically it shouldn't because the clotting cascades, they're there, they're, they're, that's not the problem. The problem is just the activation of this cascade. Mm. And that gets us way back to this oxidative stress thing that we were talking about. Um, it's this oxidative stress that we believe is inflaming that endothelium, that covering of the vascular wall. And what's stored underneath that uh, endothelium, inside, underneath it, subendothelial, we call it, are these factors. And this is one of the things that we're looking at, von Willebrand's factor. There were some studies that looked at these patients with uh, COVID-19, and they actually tested their von Willebrand factor activity level, and they were up over 500% in, in these patients. So it's it's felt that these von Willebrand factors, which are little tiny little, I'll think of them as Lego blocks. Mm -hmm. And what they do when when it, uh, it when they start to activate and cause problems, and in this case problems, normally they're supposed to be there to help you to, to plug up things, is they form, uh, they go from monomers, which are individual packets into polymers. And it's these polymers, they're like long ropes and strings. They catch 
and bind platelets. And then once the platelets get involved, then you you get this clotting cascade and those proteins are always available to, 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 to do this. Now, one of the things I should mention too is we're starting to get evidence that it may not just be a one hit thing. So yes, there may be more oxidative stress. There may be more endothelial damage. Yes, there may be more von Willebrand's factor, but it's not like the platelets are normal either. There was a study that came out recently that showed that RNA expression in platelets, specifically megakaryocytes, which are the cells that give rise to these platelets, they break up and they form these little platelet things. Um, they are abnormally expressing RNA when they are incubated with the, with the COVID-19 virus SARS-CoV-2. And so in other words, these platelets are becoming more sticky so you have more oxidative stress, endothelial damage, von Willebrand's factor, and then these platelets are becoming more sticky. And, and in, in one of these papers, another one of these papers, they said they were pulling out clots that were, quote, white, white clots. Mm -hmm. So these are very, very rich in platelets. And then there was another study that seems to be backing this up saying they're seeing megakaryocytes, which are these cells that give rise to platelets. They're seeing megakaryocytes where they don't normally see them. They're seeing them in the clots. So it, it, it's... I don't think there's a, a a you know very eloquent, nice little theory that that plays through like a like a bunch of biochemical arrows in a biochemistry textbook. I think this is hitting multi areas. Yeah, it's like a Rube Goldberg uh, contraction. Yeah. One of the things that you uh, talk about in um, in the MedCram uh, video series is the life cycle, namely prevention, risk mitigation, and treatment. And in a perfect world, you just prevent this until we come up with um, vaccines or effective, uh, fully effective treatments, as well as risk mitigation, which means tuning up the uh, the patient as best you can. So if and when they get hit, it's uh, it's much milder illness. And then of course the treatment um, prevention is kind of the, the the simplest one, which would be mask hand washing. Uh, physical distancing, the fact that it's more likely to be transmitted indoors compared to outdoors. Um, and if we move on to mitigating the risk that is tuning people up a little bit more, um, interestingly enough, you've you've had submissions from some of the listeners related to historic medical documents. That is what people were doing um, 50, 100 years ago to treat, tough to treat, viral conditions and even more modernly things that are out of the box and i'd like to just spend a couple minutes talking about that the first one would be the use of heat or hyperthermia um, the example that you gave that was kind of fascinating was that um, advanced syphilis um, 100 years ago we had no real treatments i think people used heavy metals at the time to treat it which is kind of an insane <laughs> way to do, insane way to do it you know it's like bleeding and you know, it's like trying to treat people with uh, leeches and bleeding. But um, um, interestingly enough, we didn't have any antibiotics back then, but heat seemed to be uh, a way to treat it. Describe the the one-two punch. And I, if I remember correctly, a Nobel Prize was awarded for this clever uh, concoction. Yeah, so the irony is, is 1928, that was the year that aspirin was, dis was uh, sorry, yeah, that um, penicillin, sorry, was discovered. Um, and with that discovery of penicillin is where we have now, because we have medications, we have randomized controlled trials, not to say that that didn't happen before that, but the year before 1928, the year that penicillin was discovered is, was 1927. And that was the year that Dr. Yoreg 
received the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Well, why did he receive that Nobel Prize? Well, it's because he noticed in his sane asylum in Austria that patients with neurosyphilis seemed to improve in their symptoms when they had a fever for whatever reason. So he had this idea, let, maybe the fever is, is so nonspecific that it's not only fighting whatever the body thinks is, shouldn't be there, but it's fighting stuff that the body can't fight well enough on its own. In other words, the body's immune system is not being appropriately jacked up enough to mm -hmm. take care of what's going on. So because they had the treatment for malaria at the time, ironically, you know, chloroquine, these sorts of things, um, he purposefully injected his patients with, uh, you know, plasmodium falciparum, give malaria. He did it under very controlled circumstances. He kept these patients in the hospital. They monitored them very carefully. And, um, and sure enough, the fevers came on and sure enough, the fevers made the neurosyphilis uh, symptoms go away to the point where the body actually cured itself of the syphilis. And then it was just a simple matter of curing the, the malaria with the, with the medications known at the time. And these patients were cured. And, and this was a, this was a sort of a, not a new way, but it was a way that they had sort of thought about in the past but it had come to such a fruition that this was the, imagine that this, this was the, the pinnacle of science at that time before randomized controlled trials in drugs. And so really it, it, it was a, there's a, there was a diversion in the road at that point about which way medicine in the United States was gonna go. It's a very clever uh, technique actually. Yeah. And if I remember one of the MedCram videos, they also talked about exposing people with the 1918 pandemic flu uh, to various types of heat. Um, I think it was called hydrotherapy. Um, can you yeah, talk about so, that for just a minute? Yeah, so there was a, there was a number of sanitariums, they called them at the time, in the Northeast of the United States especially. Um, this was a time of, of a lot of very uh, famous physicians who, who treated uh, patients. There's John Harvey Kellogg at the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. They treated uh, Henry Ford, presidents, all sorts of people. These were the, the top thinkers of the time. He published- Kellogg, Kellogg's movie, there's a movie called Road to Wellville, if people haven't seen it. It's an excellent movie and it's probably yeah. about 20, 25 years old. Um, but anyway, sorry to interject, keep going. No, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so so they had come up, in fact, he published a book you can get free online. Uh, it's, a, it's a PDF called uh, Rational Hydrotherapy where he goes through this very methodically. Anyway, uh, the, um, there was a number of, of, de of Adventist denominational uh, uh, sanitariums in the Northeast that practiced this hydrotherapy. They believed at the time in natural remedies, not using medications, things of that nature. Ironically, in the army hospitals, because the uh, soldiers were coming back from World War I at the time, bringing back this, this uh, epidemic, and uh, aspirin was being used, probably overused in, in these uh, in these uh, uh, army hospitals. In fact, the at the time, the saying was that the, the, the German, the Bayer, German Bayer aspirin killed more Americans than the German bullets did. That was the, <laughs> the thought at the time. Anyway, so Dr. Rubel, who was the medical director of the uh, New England Sanitarium in Boston, in Massachusetts, uh, kept track of the patients that were being treated and wrote down the statistics. And, and the interesting thing about those statistics were that if you looked at the army hospital versus what was going on in the sanitarium with the hydrotherapy, 
the overall mortality rate was like one to two percent in the sanitarium and it was like six percent in the army hospital but there was a division there they looked at the number of people that got pneumonia and then they looked at the number of people that died from pneumonia mm -hmm. and the key was the key that the sanitarium had over the army hospitals was they were much more able they were much better at preventing the pneumonia once it got to the pneumonia phase once the patients actually got pneumonia clinically of course they didn't use x-rays widely at the time but once they got to the clinical phase of pneumonia the the, uh, the sanitariums really didn't do much better than the army hospital so the key was early intervention they're, they're, they didn't need a test there was no biochemical test to determine if someone had influenza if you had symptoms that was the test for them you immediately were placed in bed you immediately had bed rest. Um, you were uh, subjected to about two to three times daily hot fomentations. Let me explain what that is. That's where they would put you in a, in a bed. They would put hot uh, towels that were from steam on the, on the bottom and on the top of you that were uh, you know, separated by maybe one or two layers of towels so it didn't burn you. The purpose was to heat the body up. They would put your feet in a very hot uh, bath to make sure that you didn't lose heat. They would cover you up. They're basically increasing the body temperature uh, of your body. They put a cold towel on your head to uh, to try to fool your uh, mind and your uh, hypothalamus into thinking that you weren't actually having a hot fever so they could warm up the temperature. They do this about two to three times daily. And then you would literally stay in bed and they made sure they stayed in bed for at least two days after the symptoms resolved. You know, Jeff, there was a story uh, that was published in another one of those uh, denominational articles where an entire um, seminary in Minnesota, where these were students that were maybe in their 20s, everybody came down with the virus like in two days. And and the medical director of that sanitary of that uh, seminary did did all exactly what I was just describing to everybody in that sanitarium. Not a single soul uh, perished in that uh, in that epidemic in there. So. Um, I think what's going on there is that they're increasing the innate immunity early on. You're not waiting for a test to come back and then finding out that you have coronavirus. You're not having to go to the hospital and then telling you, no, you're, you don't need oxygen. You're not ready to be admitted. Go home and come back later. So I think there is something to be said for early, early intervention when someone feels that they're ill. Uh, and then getting treatment. The problem, of course, with coronavirus is in a lot of these people, it's asymptomatic. So it's it's something that we have to watch. So there seems to be a mechanism of action. You're saying it improves the innate immunity with heat, hydrotherapy, et cetera. And if I remember correctly, um, you can measure that to some degree, perhaps with the number or concentration of natural killer cells. And if we fast forward to you know more modern days, how do people raise their temperature and is is it considered healthy um, saunas I mean there are people that swear by them and the question is do they do they just feel better or do they actually are they prevented from getting some of the seasonal conditions that we're otherwise exposed to like coronavirus um, the, the normal cold and or the flu yeah so nobody uses saunas in the world more than the Finns. In fact, I think if, if the <laughs> the fact is, is that if we told every single Finn to go inside a sauna at any particular moment, there would be enough saunas in the country for every Finn to fit inside of a sauna. It's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of crazy, actually. But no, they've done some really good research. There's, uh, I mean, there's studies that show all-cause mortality 
goes down with sauna use, that it's tied to the number of times per week that sauna use is being used. Um, there is uh, data that shows that acute chest infections are reduced. Um, so the, the list goes on and on and on. And, and so increasing body temperature, decreasing, I mean, these fins, they go in and then they jump into the cold water then they go mm -hmm. back in uh, into, the, into the hot sauna. Um, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, the other the other uh, culture that does it. Let's be fair. Um, it's not just the Finns. The Japanese they love their very very hot baths, 115 degrees. That would be that's illegal in uh, in the United States. I think the the highest that your spa will go in the United States is 104. Uh, they go to 115. So they use it off label. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I know we're tight on time. I want to. I'm, I'm sensitive to this. There are a couple of things. I just want to hit before I let you go and go back to take uh, taking care of your patients. Um, in terms of some of the other interesting things that you've talked about and you've looked at the literature, one that really grabbed my attention was something called forest baths. Forest yeah. baths um, mean someone's going into nature, typically around pine trees, and interestingly enough, it improves their innate immunity. But please don't take my word for it. Go into the science of that and whether it's it's uh, an interesting thing that deserves further uh, attention. No, there's no question about it. I think it's real. Um, I think the, the the scientists that did this, the Japanese scientists, and you can see it in our MedCram update. If you type in MedCram forest bathing, you'll see the whole video on it. But basically, they took these uh, people from the city and took them up into the forest, exposed them to walking through a forest for about a couple of hours uh, for a couple of days, and then measured their natural killer cells, measured uh, urinary cortisol. They were much more relaxed. They had elevated levels of natural killer cells. Uh, they did the same experiment except they put them in, in a hotel room and, and uh, aerosolized uh, hinoki oil, which is one of the things from Japanese Cyprus. And they got exactly the same results, except the urinary cortisol was not as reduced. So there's something about walking in a forest that relaxes someone and allows that immune system to kick in. We know that high cortisol levels are detrimental to your immunity. That's why longer sleep hours are better. That's why decreased stress is better. And you know, I'll just mention this too, Jeff, is recently I've discovered that eucalyptus, this is the same oil, by the way, and it's so amazing when we start to think about these things because we think about what our parents and grandparents used to do, and you know, they weren't so crazy. But Vicks VapoRub, they put eucalyptus oil in Vicks VapoRub. Eucalyptus oil has been shown to increase innate immunity as well, exactly at the point where coronavirus tries to suppress it. Um, and so, you know, you have to be careful with eucalyptus. You shouldn't really ingest it, but something that you can put on your skin, these sorts of things. There's good data from about 10 years ago that was published that showed that there was a significant increase in, in macrophages. And... What macrophages do is they clean up the, the, the cells with the virus at the very beginning in that phase. Yeah, interesting about what our parents and grandparents did. So one things that my one of the things my grandparents did was vitamin D with, with cod liver oil. Let's go into your regimen. Um, your statement, which I think was quite powerful, is that you'd rather be taking something that might not work than not taking something that does work, particularly if the risk to benefit ratio is reasonable. And for the compounds that you've described, and I'll just go through the laundry list. You can certainly add and subtract. You're talking about zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, N-acetylcysteine or NAC, and quercetin. Is that is that the list that you um, you're taking and and um, 
your colleagues maybe i know i'm taking it you've certainly persuaded me so it's yeah I, in fact, a in fact just, yeah in fact just before i got on i uh i i downed it with some lemon juice um yeah all of those have good data vitamin c we have great data that um that 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 is an essential function and that there's micronutrients that improve vitamin d man wow that's we've got amazing data on vitamin d uh, we've got data out of the UK that shows that it decreases acute chest infections pro prospectively. And if you consider COVID-19 acute chest infection, well, there you go. Um, we have all-cause mortality data in vitamin D. We have uh, uh, retrospective data in terms of who are most at risk for dying from coronavirus for vitamin D. So I think vitamin D makes sense. Uh, NAC, we've got data that shows that prospectively in influenza virus, that NAC decreases symptoms. And we also know that NAC not only does, does it do that, but NAC also is an antioxidant, which we, according to the to the hypothesis, should be helpful. But and tell even people more what NAC is. I mean, NAC's really just a variation yeah. of an amino acid. It's three amino acids stuck together in a, in a way that, and, and the important part of that is that it, there's a cysteine there. That's hence N-acetylcysteine. The mm -hmm. cysteine has an SH residue, and that SH residue uh, cuts disulfide bonds. And mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, von Willebrand's factor polymerizes using disulfide bonds. And so there's there's some studies that show that intravenous NAC, we wouldn't be giving it intravenously, of course, at home, but, but taking it orally, but intravenous NAC can actually be used as a thrombolytic, amazingly enough. It, there's some neurosurgery data there that infusion, intravenous infusion of NAC can actually help break up clots. And that may be important, especially in uh, COVID-19. And uh, quercetin, zinc, et cetera, those are also so, um, in so, the yeah, list. That comes out of the data early on. And uh, um, this was this was before it was politicized. We, we looked at hydroxychloroquine. And there's been many mechanisms proposed for that. One of them was that hydroxychloroquine is a zinc ionophore. It gets zinc into the cells. We've got good data that high concentrations of intracellular zinc shuts down the virus, the RNA polymerase virus. And so the uh, the in vitro to in vivo hypothesis was is that if we can get zinc inside the cells, that might be beneficial. The way to do that is quercetin. Quercetin is also a zinc ionophore. It's found in onions, capers. But if you take it as a supplement, that might it might help. In fact, at the time, there was a Canadian and Chinese scientist that were was investigating the use of quercetin in COVID-19. It had already been tested and found to be successful in e Ebola. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about uh, hydroxychloroquine. We won't spend a lot of time on it. I'm, I'm actually reluctant to even bring up the name because I don't want YouTube to take down this uh, this podcast. Um, they tend to censor using the artificial. So we'll use our secret code word, blueberry or something like that. <laughs> but uh, I think you've been pretty good in terms of just describing what the literature uh, suggests out there. And I don't know. I guess the question is, has it been fully tested? Is it is it safe to say it's unproven, disproven? Still, we need more data. Uh, I mean, my personal take is that it's been studied and we see things on different sides right here. And I'm not sure it's been definitively studied in the way that it would make the most sense, namely use it either prophylactically or early, use it in combination with zinc. I mean, that's just, and, and it may very well be, it's a, it's a bust. But I think some of the early, some of the early um, complaints was that uh, included that it's an amazingly unsafe compound. People will be dying left and right. 
Um, yeah. So you've got both the safety and the efficacy arguments. Where do you think we are right now? Do you think we have enough to say that it's been answered definitively? The, the other thing that's kind of interesting is I saw one study, and this is probably the most interesting study to me, even though it was only done on a handful of animals. It was non-human primates, so great model, but they were young. They weren't particularly old and challenged from an oxidative stress standpoint. And um, they didn't use zinc either, but they found that it didn't, uh, by giving it to them early, it didn't really have much of an effect in terms of virus load or, um, or symptoms. But none of these macaque monkeys really became particularly ill, partly because they were young and partly because it's so expensive to do these studies on non-human primates. But what do, you, what do you think is a reasonable conclusion today if you care yeah. to do that, then take a stand. Yeah, no, I, I no problem. I just look at the data, and the data is, is uh, at first was kind of positive because we had some retrospective studies. I think I think you could classify the data right now into two camps. A lot of the positive data on hydroxychloroquine are coming from retrospective studies and anecdotal stories, right. and a lot of the negative uh, uh, stuff is coming from prospective studies that are, are, are the gold standard of what we use. And so I've become a little bit more disillusioned with the effect of hydroxychloroquine. And I don't know if it's, we're certainly not using it now in patients that are coming into the hospital. Right. Uh, it, it was supposed to be used with azithromycin. And we're, we're not doing that. We're, uh, we're, we're using remdesivir if we have it. If not, we're trying to do plasma as, a, as an early intervention. But um, I think more studies are needed. I think there are actually going to be, interestingly, a lot of studies because when the studies were started, the big thing was hydroxychloroquine. So I think there's a lot of studies out there that are going to be coming in probably over the next month or two that uh, show it one way or the other. And I think it's going to come down on the side of not not working. I, I, I wish I was wrong. I wish it, it did work because that would be great to have that. But uh, it just seems like this prospective studies that are coming in that are the gold standard, just not showing that it's working. I mean, that's the thing. You have to really study it to know whether it works. And I was in biotech for five years, and it's just hard to do clinical trials. I mean, you have to pick the right compound with the right kinetics for the right patient at the right time. And I know it sounds very easy to do. It's really yeah. not. It's very, it's very time consuming. It's very expensive, particularly when you're dealing with complex patients who may be, you know, may have a number of underlying comorbid conditions and they're coming in four plus sick, it's just difficult to do. I mean, you would plan a clinical trial up front. This is how you would design it. But here you've got people showing up at the door and, and not everybody checks the right box in terms of um, being able to be included in the study. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you look at what we had previously for viruses, like let's look at Tamiflu for the flu. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got to use it within 48 hours of symptoms. Otherwise, it's not effective. Right. Maybe, so maybe we need to do that. that strict. Yeah. Timing matters. And particularly if you're talking about zinc, you know, it may very well be that hydroxychloroquine is effective if it is effective, primarily because it's helping zinc get into the cell. If you don't add zinc to it, you may be missing a, a cofactor, if you will, that's uh, necessary but not sufficient. I mean, that, that's why exactly. this stuff is so complicated. Um, exactly. Let's uh, close out with vaccines briefly. It looks like we've got at least five candidates that are out there, but there are more and more that are showing up every day. Uh, Moderna is a is a leader, and you've got the combination with BioNet and Pfizer, and those 
both seem to be RNA uh, type of vaccines focused on the um, on the um, the spike protein. Um, yeah. AstraZeneca is working with uh, University of Oxford on a chimp adenovirus. Um, CanSino's working, doing a similar type of thing with a human adenovirus. And then you've got J and J, um, which suggest I think it's J and J suggested um, that we're working with an adenovirus um, vector that may only require one dose uh, instead of two doses or more. I mean, this is probably the first time in history we've seen so many candidates come out at one time. Uh, I think it's it's both useful, but it may be confusing. I'm actually pretty hopeful that we will have a vaccine by uh, the end of this year or Q1 uh, 2020. I think I think the primary um, limiting step is going to be to be able to test it out in the field. Um, on the one hand, you want the you want the fewest number of patients with COVID out there, just from a economic and health burden perspective. On the other hand, the the greater the number of people who have COVID in the background, the quicker you'll be able to get an answer as to whether it's efficacious. So it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you're rooting uh, against COVID just for the country. On the other hand, you're rooting for it just so you can test the vaccine and get it out sooner rather than later. You're right. And I, I think that's why they're going to these epidemic centers um, like Texas, California, Florida to, to, to really get a lot of their, their uh, subjects. But um, they're supposed to be doing phase three trials now. I, so we'll see how fast they can get that. Uh, at least that's what they were announcing, that that um, Moderna was going to be starting phase three trials in, in late July, August. So here we yeah, are. They've already started. They've already injected the first uh, their first yeah. people, or at least they're, they're lining up their people. And um, I believe BioNet and Pfizer are in the same boat. They've both um, started the injections. And the other ones are going to be around the corner. So you have at least five leaders that are out there. And in parallel, uh, the manufacturing capability has been ramped up. So the government seems to be underwriting the risk associated with getting enough of these out there. So even if the phase three trials fail, um, well, if, if they, let's put it a different way, if they are successful, we won't have to wait to ramp up manufacturing capability. If they do fail, we'll still be able to move to a different vaccine. But uh, there are Manufacturing is being ramped up as we're having this podcast right now, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, two things. What are you pessimistic about? What are you optimistic about? And then we'll close. Wow, optimistic is hard. Pessimistic. Uh, Start with pessimism know, first. Yeah. Pessimism. Yeah. <laughs> well, the vaccine. I mean, everyone's sort of waiting. We have high expectations on the vaccine. There's two areas that I'm a little bit pessimistic on the vaccine, um, and that is is it works too well and you get an autoimmune response. We, we actually mm -hmm. saw some of that with the H1N1 vaccine in Europe. There was a, uh, you can look this up, there was a spike in narcolepsy cases. And I'm not saying that that would happen specifically with this, but it's the kind of thing that you could get from uh, inducing an autoimmune response. So narcolepsy is, is, is a hypersomnolence that occurs when you don't have hypocretin in the, in the posterior pituitary secretion or the posterior uh, hypothalamus, I should say. Um, that's because there's antibodies that, that hit those cells and knocked it out. And so they, they become narcoleptics. And we think that that may be related to the vaccine. Um, so could something else happen? We, kn we know that uh, we're getting autoimmune responses for people who are naturally being vaccinated 
quote unquote vaccinated by getting the, mm -hmm. the virus. Those are these these children that are getting uh, Kawasaki like diseases. So that's you know, when you when you have something coming to market that quickly and uh, you might get some post marketing analysis showing that there may be an increase in autoimmune conditions. The other pessimism that I have has to do with anytime you make an RNA virus uh, vaccine, and that is, is that it doesn't work so well. The problem that they've had with HIV vaccines is this thing that we that no one really has talked about much. We, we, we think about this very clean ACE2 receptor and this very clean spike protein on the virus, but in fact, that's not the case at all. These uh, there's something called sialic acids. These are, if you can imagine, these proteins are like Christmas trees, and the sialic acids are the little decorations. They're little ornaments, and they can tweak and and uh, make little differences in terms of conformational binding that makes these proteins a little bit different. In fact, the 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 HIV uh, virus itself is almost completely covered with sialic acids, so it makes it really difficult to try to find that protein conformation. And we don't know how much sialic acids in these glycans, these sugar, these are sugar molecules basically, uh, are going to coat this in, in different ways. And that's a whole other area of biology. And in fact, if you go to uh, conferences on HIV virus vaccines, the whole conference is about these glycans and sialic acids and how to get around those. So that's something that um, we really hopefully hasn't really been an issue up to this point, but it may be in terms of getting a good vaccine. We'll see what happens. Those are my two pessimisms. Optimisms. Um, ah, optimism. What about, what about um, yeah. planning ahead? I mean, on the one hand, while it's lethal, it's not as lethal as it could have been. Do you think that right. uh, the country is now woken up to the fact that we need to be prepared in the future uh, for, yeah. for more aggressive types of um, biologic catastrophes? Yeah, it's it's true. I, I would hope that we have now sort of a blueprint for if something else comes out with a completely different binding protein and a completely different cell attachment that we've got some sort of a concerted way of dealing with this from the federal state and, you know, scientific aspect. You know, if we think about this, I, I was just finishing a book about existential threats to the human condition and the question that they posed, and it's actually a very depressing read, although on the, on the other hand, it's somewhat optimistic. Because if you think about it up front, you can plan for it. And it talks about some of the concerns with, you know, will humanity make it? You know, what is the likelihood of us making it 100 years or, or forever? And his, his calculation was that he gave us a one in six chance of making it as a civilization uh, 100 years and one in two chance of making it long term with the biggest threats not being the ones you would think about, namely an asteroid hitting the planet uh, or, um, um, or some of the other natural catastrophes. He says the biggest concerns would be um, artificial general intelligence that gets out of control that we haven't properly prepared for, uh, a nuclear catastrophe, um, mutually assured destruction, and finally, an engineered pandemic. And so the last one is the one that's of greatest concern. And I hear your beep going off in the background. <laughs> so I am I am going to close. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I was going to say that's uh, that's that that sounds like the plot to a Terminator movie. There. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but Terminator I think pandemic. But his larger point was that if yeah. you think about this up front and you invest the appropriate amount of resources into it, we're clever people. We can probably figure it out. He said that the amount of 
money we have put into preparing for a biologic catastrophe um, is less than the annual budget for an individual McDonald's franchise, which is extremely sobering. But my guess is that will change going forward. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think people are starting to wake up and understand what the uh, those existential threats are. And so, yeah, there is some optimism that people are starting to think about this. Certainly, uh, we're seeing some of the, the social movements. People are at least making decisions to move out of cities. They're uh, starting to think about things. They're starting to uh, buy chickens. You can't buy chickens anymore. They're, uh, they get sold out. So people are thinking about it, I think, yeah. Um, so I'll close with the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. The optimist believes these are the best of all times. The pessimist is afraid the optimist is correct. <laughs> all right, listen, Perfect. Roger, thanks so much. Uh, I encourage everyone to go to his site, do it now. If you're not a subscriber, subscribe to the COVID MedCram videos. I think if you need CME, we, as physicians, we all need CME credits. It's a no-brainer. Just do it. There's no more cost-effective way to get CME credits. Uh, we hope to have, I, I could talk for two or three or four hours on this. Thanks so much for being generous with your time and hopefully we can do it again soon. Thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate being on. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at one 877 Med Just. That's 1 877 Med Just or 633 5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member, of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.